0: Member at Delray Baptist Church. Just finished the internship, so I am excited to be here. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 46. And as you turn there, let's pray together. Father, you are a God who is good, you're a God who is kind and strong, just and and loving, you alone are worthy of all of our praise and honor and worship. Father, as we come and look to your holy word, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we may not just understand what you have to say, but Lord, that you would enable us to believe it and to live in light of it. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the most famous days in modern history is April fifteenth, 1912. On that day, the Titanic sank. Most of us, probably all of us, have heard about the Titanic. As it hit the iceberg, it immediately began to send out calls for help help, we're sinking, help, we're sinking. And ships from hundreds of miles away received these calls for help. Some of them redirected and began to come to try and help. But being hundreds of miles away, they were too far and the ship sank too quickly. They weren't able to come because of their distance. One ship, the Carpathia, came and it saved about 700 people. But, with how quickly the Titanic sank, it was insufficient by itself to help save everyone on board. But there is a ship that most people don't know about that was very close to the Titanic, and it was the Californian. The Californian was just ahead of the Titanic and had actually sent messages back to the Titanic that said, there are icebergs, you need to be careful. There were so many icebergs out that that night that the captain of the Californian ordered the ship to stop and the radio men to all go to sleep. So because of that, radio men asleep, the calls for help were never heard. A ship close enough that would have been willing and eager to come help didn't come help at all because they didn't even hear the calls. Now, None of us are a ship. None of us are even on a ship right now that's sinking. But all of us are in need of help. All of us are insufficient in and of ourselves to fight sin. We're all insufficient in and of ourselves to deal with the trials and difficulties that arise in our lives. We all need help. And as we turn to various things for help, we will find them all like the ships that came to help the Titanic. Some of us will turn to things that will be able to help in some ways, but ultimately be insufficient to help us in every way. Some of us will turn to things that will be too distant, even though they might be eager to help, they'll be too far away to provide any kind of real, meaningful assistance." And some of us will turn to things that will be like the Californian that won't even hear our calls for help. So it leaves us with the question, where do we turn for true, sufficient, real help? Enter Psalm 46. If you would look with me to God's word, Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. It says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Almoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Our main point today is going to be this. Flee to God for help in need. For he alone can truly help. Flee to God for help in times of need. For he alone can truly help help. Today we're going to look at three different things as we consider this topic. The first will be flee to God in chaos, verses 1 through 3. Flee to God in chaos. Secondly, flee to God in conflict, verses 4 through 7. And lastly, and I'm going to need you to hang with me in verses 8 through 11. It might not sound theologically true, but I need to To explain this, the last one, flee to God no longer. Verses 8 through 11. So flee to God in chaos, flee to God in conflict, and flee to God no longer. Our psalm this morning, if you look at at the beginning, the heading, there is no clear historical setting. This means that this psalm is generally true, universally true of anything, anytime that we are in trouble. Anytime we need help, this psalm will apply to us. This psalm will be true. This psalm will be somewhere where we can go for truth in the midst of our troubles. But there is some hints in this chapter that might give us some suggested understanding of what's going on in The history of this psalm. We find God to be a fortress or a refuge. We find the nations raging against his city Jerusalem. There is a number of situations in Israel's history where nations came against fortified walled Jerusalem and God won victories. Jehoshaphat 2nd Chronicles 20 had the Ammonites coming against him, and God won a victory. But there is another situation, and I think this could be likely, though we can't be sure, the setting. is found in Isaiah 36 and 37. The Assyrians, under the leadership of Sennacherib, came against Jerusalem, and they surrounded and sieged the city. And they came up, they sent messengers to say to Isaiah and Hezekiah, You're all foolish. If you think your God is going to help you, you are all going to die. Just surrender now or else. And as you find, and we'll reference throughout this this text, in Isaiah 37, Overnight, God confused the armies. Israel wakes up in the morning and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead. There's a situation in which the city is surrounded, the nations rage against God's city, and God miraculously delivers his people. I think that's the setting that we find for this text. With that said, let's just start with our first point. Flee to God for help in chaos. Our text begins abruptly with God. There's no slowing into the text. There's no kind of warming up until you get to the main idea. He just begins with the word God. A statement in verse 1 about who God is. We find truth we need to believe that lays a foundation for everything he's going to say in this chapter. It's like verse 1 he's saying okay here's what you need to know in order to respond rightly according to the rest of the text." We find three things in this first verse. We're going to find that God is a protection, God is power, and God is present. First, God is our protection. Verse 1, God is our refuge. A refuge is a fortress that we run to to be sheltered from danger. A refuge is something that we hide in when storms come. The need for refuge implies that there is some sort of trouble coming. Whether it be a storm we need to hide from, whether it be armies assailing us that we need to to flee and be safe from, we need a safe place. Here, we find that that safe place is God himself. Every single one of us in this room seeks refuge somewhere. When trials come, when difficulties in life arise, we run for refuge somewhere. The question is where? Where do you go when times get hard? Some people try to escape reality and binge all day on Netflix. Some people might flee to YouTube or or surfing the internet. Some people might flee to alcohol to escape reality. Some people might find refuge in their planning, their financial planning. I have this much in my bank account, so I'm safe. Our educations, our networking, I have enough connections that if anything goes wrong, I have friends in high places that I could get a job or I could, I'll be okay, I'm safe. I have a refuge. Churches oftentimes trust in endowments or we have a surplus and we have enough money, we're safe. All of those are refuges that can crack and crumble. If we're finding ultimate safety and security and refuge in those things, it's no different than a child putting a blanket over its head and thinking that they're safe. There's no true lasting security there. Our text tells us there is a place that is safe. It's in the person of our triune God. Refuge in God himself. As Luther wrote in his song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the first line, that God is a mighty fortress, he will never fail. No one will scale his walls and come into his city. No one will, will knock down his, his defenses. He will stand forever and he will shelter and refu- be a refuge to his people. The next thing we find about God is that he is our power. God is our refuge and then it says he is our strength. And just as the word refuge implies that there is something to hide from, Strength implies that inherently we aren't strong enough. We have weaknesses. We have deficiencies and, and lacks of power. Where will you look for power? Israel often would turn to political alliances. We don't need you, God. We have Assyria. And then Assyria comes and attacks them. We don't need you, God. We have Egypt. And then Egypt loses a battle, and now they're in trouble. Oftentimes, we turn to ourselves. If I just try harder, if I just get stronger in this area, well, I'll be good. The greatest greatest nations will weaken and fall. The strongest men will age and become weak. Allies will betray. Crowds will leave. Power has to be found somewhere outside of man and the things of this world. Again, our text tells us true strength is found in God and in God alone. It is God who speaks and demonstrates his power by having nothing, saying, hey, let this happen, and we have a universe. That's power. God effortlessly sustains the universe that he created. In the scriptures, we find that the power of God opens and closes wounds. We find that God in the scripture is powerful to raise the dead, to heal the sick. God parts the seas and causes them to come back. God destroys walled cities. God changes lives. Do you lack power? Turn to God. As you struggle against sin and you look at yourself and say, I can't overcome this lust. God, I can't tame my tongue. I keep lying or I keep, I keep gossiping and slandering. Or Lord, I, I can't change my tongue. You need God. He can. God can curb the lust. God can tame the tongue. God can change the covetousness in our hearts. And he can heal the bitterness of our wounds. But we can't. Our friends can. The world can. Only God. Only God. God is our protection. God is our power. And God is present. It says this. I love this. This last line in verse 1. That he is a very present help in trouble. All of our trusts will fail us. Except for God. There will be many people in our lives, just like the ships with the Titanic, that want to be there, that want to help us, that want to support us, but might be on the other side of the earth and not be able to because they're not close. Not God. God is always with us. He is not just present to help us. The text tells us he is very present. He is close at hand. He is nearby at all times. Never leaving, never forsaking. In times of trouble. Notice this text just tells us there will be troubles in life. Cancer will come. Job loss will happen. There will be problems in our relationships, in the home, in the church, at work. Persecutions will arise against God's people. And in all of life's trouble for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who know God through His Son, we have a very present help in all of those troubles. Right by us. We are never without help. We're never without help. Let me ask you this before we move to verse 2. Do you believe this? Not just do you mentally agree with facts, like I believe God is our protection and he is our power and he is, our, he is present with us. I mean, do you believe this? The best way for us to know whether we actually believe these truths is to examine our lives and see where do we run to when times get hard? Where do we run to for shelter, for refuge? Where do we run to for power? Where do we run to? Who do we believe is there to help us? Verse 2 and 3 are going to show us that in this situation there's chaos. Verse 2. I believe verse 2 and 3 are poetic, symbolic language that will describe what we're going to see in verses 4 through 7. We're going to see that the nations are raging, that they're coming against God's city. And I think that the psalmist in verse 2 and 3 is describing the same situation as if the whole world is falling apart. The whole world's in chaos. Everything that is ordered and stable is now disordered and unstable. Look at verse 2. Because the psalmist knows his God and believes God to truly be there to, to shelter, protect him, to empower him, and there to help him. He says, therefore, we will not fear. Faith drives fear out. We will not fear. Well, what what is the the situation that they might be fearing? Here's what he says. Though the earth gives way. We could roughly translate it, though the world falls apart. The world is falling apart and the psalmist says, I'm not going to fear. Then he says that though the mountains be moved... Though the mountains slide into the sea, I won't fear. Though the sea roars and foams and the mountains shake, tremble at its swelling, I'm not going to fear. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, before God says, let there be light, the world that he's created is in a state of uninhabitable chaos. Water and darkness are covering the whole earth. And God in Genesis 1 speaks and brings order. He tells the dry land to come forth and the the oceans to stay here and go no further. And they obey. We have mountains formed. And there are just these pictures of stability and immovability. God's creation is ordered. And these things we can count on. The ocean comes this far. Mountains stand. They don't move. And when the psalmist is looking out at the situation in Jerusalem, he says, it's almost like all of God's ordered creation is now in chaos. It's almost as if we've gone back to Genesis 1 verse 2. There's been this reversal. And in spite of all that chaos, the psalmist says, what I know in verse 1 about my God, I have nothing to fear. My God is with me to help me. My God will protect me. My God will shelter me and empower me, and I'm going to trust him and not fear. Our first point, we see run, flee to God in chaos. Our second point, flee to God for help in conflict. Verses 4 through 7. Verse 4. We see that we can run to God for help in conflict because he is our sustainer. In verse 4. Notice the contrast between verses 2 and 3 and verse 4. We have waters foaming and roaring and swelling. And then you get to verse 4 and you find a picture of a nice, quiet, tranquil river. With streams and gladness and joy. Verse 4, why, why do we find that? Verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now Jerusalem has the Kidron Brook, which is not inside of the walls of Jerusalem. There's no natural river that flows there. We know in Hezekiah's time he built kind of an underground channel that brought water into the city. But what is this river a reference to? Well, this is an echo, kind of a a back-looking to Genesis chapter 2. In the Garden of Eden, where God specially, uniquely dwelled with his people, there was a river that ran through the garden and broke into four different rivers. We find in Genesis, pre-fall... That there is God providing in his special presence for his people, Adam and Eve, provision to sustain the garden, to sustain life. And this picture of a river running through God's city to to sustain life runs throughout scripture. Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 1 through 12 talk about this new temple that's going to come. And proceeding from the throne of God, there's going to be a river that gives life and vegetation and sustains life. Revelation 22, the the Bible ends, Revelation 22, verse 1, with a river running through the new Jerusalem. And what does it do? It sustains life. Here we're finding that in times of conflict, verse 6, nations are raging coming against God's people, raging against God and his his children, that we can have this peace if we run to God because he'll sustain us. Just as he sustained life in in the garden, just as he'll sustain life in the new creation, in his city, his people, where his people dwell, now the church, he'll sustain us. Well, how does he sustain us today? Today? The means of grace. He's given, up, given us his word, which we can open and we can literally hear divine speech to us day after day to remind us of who God is, to remind us of his promises, to remind us of, of what he has and will do for us. We have prayer where we can run to God and say, God, I'm weak. God, I'm discouraged. God, I need help. God, I'm struggling. And he hears and is eager to answer the cries of his people. He's given us each other. You're in a church that believes in church membership where you've covenanted together, and you are going to help each other home to heaven, keep pointing each other to Christ. God has given us these means of grace to help us, to sustain us, to sustain our spiritual life. Here this river It's actually God himself. When you get to Revelation, the river is God himself. It's Christ. He sustains us. This enhances our joy that makes us glad. And the world looks on and they're like, the world's falling apart. How can you have peace? How can you be joyful in the midst of trials? And our answer is not, well, we are smarter than you. Our answer is not, we have it more together than you. Our answer is, our God sustains us. Our God upholds us. So number one, in in our second section, we run to God for help in conflict because he sustains us. Number two, we run to God for help because he's our only stability. I just want to remind you of what we read in verse two. The mountains will be what? starts with an M. Moved. The mountains are going to be moved, but look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her, his holy city, Jerusalem. Now he is in the midst of his people. That is the most encouraging verse in this chapter to me. This is my favorite psalm. And this is my favorite verse in the psalms. God is in the midst of her. God is with us. So what happens because God is with us? She shall not be what? Moved. Because God is immovable, and because he dwells in the midst of his people, in the midst of conflict and in the midst of chaos, his people are immovable as well, if they trust him. God gives his help to his people, and no nations raging against him, no no, no threats against him come where he's like, oh no, I'm in trouble, oh no, I'm scared, they're going to they're remove me from my holy city. No. No, God is immovable. And he is in the midst of his people and his people stand. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. This is a theme that runs throughout the scripture. God dwells with his people. One of the reasons I think it might be Isaiah, a reference to Sennacherib coming against Israel and Jerusalem. Because there's all these hints to the book of Isaiah. We find in Isaiah chapter 7 that God will dwell with his people. And there will be a child born and his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God is present with his people. And he manifests that ultimately. The high point of him manifesting his presence with his people is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, born of a woman, and he walked among us. He dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us. And when he left, in John 14, when he told his disciples, I'm leaving, he said, I will not leave you alone, but I will send my spirit who will dwell in you. God is with his people. He's in the midst of us now. He dwells in us by his spirit that cannot and will not be taken from us. God is immovable. Verse 5 continues, and he has this phrase that we read and we're like, I don't know what that means. Verse 5, the end of it says, God will help her when morning dawns. Have you ever been somewhere and you get an aroma that floods your mind with memories of the past. Maybe it's some, someone cooks something and you, you smell it and you instantly think of your childhood and something your mother or your father made. I'm a little weird. I grew up playing hockey. And hockey rinks have a unique smell. And I went one time recently, first time in probably 10 years, into a, a hockey rink. And there's just this smell that instantly brought back, flooded my mind with memories from my childhood. This text, God will help her when morning dawns, is supposed to be that aroma in the, in the nose of Israel where they're going to they're hear this and they're going to catch a whiff of something from their past. And it's not just supposed to bring back memories to kind of, you know, help them kind of think, wow, that was nice. These memories that it's supposed to bring back are to inspire them to trust God. Because God did something in the past, oh, he's going to do it again. There's only one other place in the, New, in the Old Testament where this phrase, when morning dawn, dawns occurs. That's in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verse 27. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 27 Israel has been set free from bondage in Egypt. God has brought the ten plagues, and Pharaoh has said, I've had enough, get out of here, leave us, so that these plagues will leave us, and they leave. And his heart is hardened again, he changes his mind, and he sends the most powerful army on the face of the earth to go destroy this ragtag bunch of ex Slaves. And Israel, as they have left Egypt, are now at the Red Sea. There's wilderness to the left, wilderness to the right, a sea in front of them, and the most powerful army in the world barreling down upon them. And God parts the Red Sea, and they go across. It says, when the morning dawns, Egypt tried to go through the waters covered them, the dawn shows that God has delivered his people. They were hopeless. They were helpless. But God, God helped them. God fought for them. God delivered them. In this phrase, when the morning dawns, should remind God's people. It should be like an aroma up into their their nostrils that brings back memories of the past that will say God has delivered his people in the past. He will help us again. There's actually an allusion to the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, verse 36. Because when God defeats Sennacherib's army, Israel does not find out about it until the dawn of the next day. God is his people's stability. He will fight for them and he will deliver them. God stabilizes his people because he's in the midst of them. He's unmoved. But here's where the conflict is shown. Verse 6 the nations rage. So, reference a quote back to Psalm chapter 2 the nations rage, they hate God. They don't want truth in their life. They don't want God's authority. They want to break his bonds apart. And they come against him. And oh, by the way, his people are on God's side, so they don't like his people. So they come against God's people. Conflict arises because we follow Christ. The kingdoms rage still against his people. We see in our own day, moral decline. Everywhere. There's attacks against what a family unit is. There's attacks against God's sexual ethic. False teaching abounds everywhere. Worldly philosophies deny God. Persecutions seek to, to stamp out the light of the gospel through the church. Every time you seem to hear news about the church, it's some unrepentant sin of a leader getting shown. False accusations against God's people. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But God doesn't tremble. As the nations rage, as Satan seeks to assail the church, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? Look at what God does in verse 6. God doesn't shake in his boots. God does not call together a council of the wisest theologians and the strongest angels and say, okay guys, help me figure out what to do. He does the same thing he did in Genesis chapter 1. He speaks. He utters his voice and the earth melts. This is kind of the opposite of Genesis 1 where he speaks and everything is created. Here he says, the nations rage against me. I speak and I melt them. God will be victorious over all of his enemies. He is the stability of his people. He is the stability of individual saints. He is in our midst. He will not be moved. All of our circumstances, all that the world tells us, will tell us the opposite. The church is in decline in the West. You guys are fools for believing these 2,000-year-old truths. Guess what? God is unmoved. His truth is unshaken. He is stable. And look at how he ends our second section. This is a refrain we'll read again in verse 11, but he says, The Lord of hosts is with us. You, we sang, Lord Sabaoth, That's not a reference to the Sabbath. That is the Hebrew word for hosts. The Lord of hosts, his name. The Lord of armies is a literal translation. God has unlimited resources. And he's with us. God owns more than the the most powerful military on the planet. God has more money than all of the nations combined. God has everything at his disposal, disposal. And he's with us. And he's the God of Jacob. When you read Genesis, the worst of all the patriarchs is Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. He's always lying and manipulating. He is a hustler. And here's the thing. God is faithful to his covenant to Jacob. The God who's great in glory and majesty, who's the God of hosts, is also the God of covenant faithfulness and grace. He's the God of Jacob. And he's with us, and he's our fortress. Now here's where we come to our third point. We've seen that God, we're to run to him, we're to flee to him for help when there's chaos, when there's conflict. But our third point is this. There will come a time where we will not need to flee to God any longer. Now I don't mean that we won't need God. For all eternity, we are going to need God to sustain us. We are going to need God to to be there to sustain us for all eternity. But there will come a point in time where there will be no conflict, where there will be no chaos, and we will no longer need to flee to God for help because he will have vanquished all his enemies. And that's what we're going to see here. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. Look at that invitation. Come behold what God does. Notice nobody else acts in the rest of this text. Nobody does anything but God. He and he alone has brought desolations on the earth. He and he alone makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He and he alone breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He and he alone burns the chariots with fire. There's no more war. There's no more implementations of war. There's no weapons. There's nothing. There's peace. Why? Because God has put all of his enemies under his feet. He has done this at the Red Sea. He did this with Sennacherib. And those are merely foreshadows to what he will ultimately do when he returns Here's what we see. God fights for his people. He is a divine warrior who fights for his people and will one day bring an end to all fighting. Behold his works. Consider his works through Israel. It is God and God alone who delivered them at the Red Sea. It is God and God alone who caused walls to crumble at Jericho and gave his people victory supernaturally. It is God and God alone who delivered his people from a 186,000-man army with Sennacherib. It is God and God alone who, through Queen Esther, preserved his people when Haman had a wicked plot to snuff them out. Consider his works through, his, through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He creates the world, sustains the world. Consider Christ's obedience, his works of obedience in the wilderness. Satan comes and says, just make it some bread. Eat. Just jump off the top of the, the temple and show everybody who you are. Just bow to me here and you can have the crown without the cross. And three times Christ says, it is written, it is written, it is written. See him in the garden, Father Not my will, but yours be done. Consider his works of healing, his power to raise Lazarus from the dead. Behold his works. Behold his works of redemption. Behold the nails that are driven through his hands and through his feet. Behold the crown that is pressed upon his brow. Behold the blood. Behold him gasping for air as he bears all of the weight of our sin. Behold him there, dying in our place, bearing all of the divine wrath that we deserve for our sin. Yet behold him rising three days later, defeating sin, Satan, the world, death. Behold him ascending and being seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes even now for you and I. Behold what his word says about him in the future as he comes and puts all his enemies under his feet and is given a name that is above every name. Behold his works of grace where he takes Saul who kills Christians and converts him and makes him Paul who now preaches the gospel. Behold his works of grace where he takes John Newton who is a slave owning. He owns a ship that takes slaves from Africa to America and makes him a pastor who writes amazing grace. Behold his works in your life of grace where he's taken you who is dead in sin and rebellious against him. And by his grace has given you a new heart and a new mind and made you a new person and is changing you. Behold his works of provision. You have clothes on your back. You have a roof over your head. You have food on the table. We need more beholding of his works. We need more considering of what he does day in and day out. What he has done in eternity, well, from the time of creation, and what he will do until the time of his return. Behold his works. But this section, verses 8 through 8 and 9. Has he brought desolation ultimately to the earth? Has he made wars to cease? Well, don't turn on the news, because you'll find that that's not happened yet. He hasn't broken the spear and the bow. There is coming a day where he will. And not just war, but sin. And not just sin, but disease. All of the effects of the fall. Disease and death. There will come a time where you and I, if we are in Jesus Christ, will no longer have to run from anything to God. Because God will have brought peace in every way. God will have reversed the effects of the fall. We'll need to come to him to sustain us. We'll still need him. But we won't need a refuge because there will be nothing to hide from. We won't need a strength from him in the sense of fighting sin or sustaining in trials because there will be no trials. There will be no sin. We won't need his help in those ways. That day has not come, so we need everything we found in verse 1. But there is coming a day where you and I will flee to him no longer. Verse 10. we have this invitation now we have a call to repent you say call to repent this is the verse I have on my mug that I I drink coffee from every morning be still and know that I am God and we, we use this as a verse to talk about everybody relax just be still there are that is a biblical concept Okay. If you have a ver- oh, this verse on a coffee mug, I'm not trying to say you should feel guilty. Throw- break that thing and throw it out. I'm not saying that. But this verse, this is a verse that he's speaking to the nations that are raging. This, this, this word, be still, it means stop. Remember when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and there was a storm and he's sleeping and they say, oh no, we're going to die and Jesus wakes up. What does he say to the raging sea? Be still. Stop. Here's what he's saying to the nations that rage. Stop. You're coming against me. It's not going to end well. Stop now. Stop your rebellion. Stop your striving against me. Know that I and I alone am God. Nations, you're not God. The things you set up as as gods, they're not gods. I alone am God. Be still and know that. Stop, repent, know that I'm God. Turn to me. I think this is a plea for the nations to repent and come to him. Be still, know I'm God. Come to me. You rebel against me now, but if you turn to me, if you stop your rebellion, turn to me, you won't be my enemies anymore. You'll be my sons and daughters. I think this is telling us, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I think what God's saying is, stop your rebellion. Turn to me and live. Turn in faith to Christ. Come to him and say, I'm guilty of sin. I have rebelled against you. I I need your grace that you give because of the cross and the resurrection. I need that. Forgive me. Believer, I think this could apply to us. Stop looking for worldly alliances. Stop looking for help from all the wrong things. Quit turning to the arm of the flesh and turn to him and him alone. He says, at the end of verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There will come a day, as we read in Philippians 2, Christ will be exalted over all. Even the name that is above every name. And he ends verse 11 with what we have seen already. But this refrain we find in verse 7 and verse 11 really encapsulates the whole psalm. He's with us. To help us. He's our fortress. To shield us. So we see here that we are to run to God for help chaos and conflict and praise God there will come a day where the running to him for help will no longer be needed this psalm was Luther's favorite psalm he it's now commonly called amongst commentators Luther's psalm he rewrote it and reworked it and we sang it it's a mighty fortress is our God if you compare those the song in this psalm there is pretty much parallels everywhere But as we close, this is not just Luther's psalm. This is your psalm and my psalm. Because the God of this psalm is your God and my God. He's your help. He's your refuge. He's he's present with you and me just as he was with Luther. As Luther knew what it was to face conflicts and chaos, maybe not to the same scale, but we all know what it's like to face trials. We have the same need as Luther did, and it's of the God of this book. And the good news is unlike the ships with the Titanic, he's here, not just offering help, but we find in verse 5, he will help. It's not just potential help, it's real, actual help. Run to him, and to him alone. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, for who else would we come to? And Lord, we confess to you that we need you. But we often turn to things of the flesh, we often turn to the world, we often turn to things that are not you. And Father, we thank you that you're gracious, but we pray that you would help us believe Psalm 46 and turn to you and to you alone. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.